Before we start today's show, I could really use your help with something. As you know, Master Brewers is an association run by some of the hardest working folks in the brewing industry. They all have jobs, but also serve the association as volunteers in lots of different ways. I need your help filling a volunteer role that, in my opinion, is one of the simplest but most important jobs. It's super easy, doesn't take much time at all, but is critical to the value of membership and to this podcast. If you're willing to help me out and give back to this incredible association, please take a minute to go to masterbrewerspodcast.com slash working group to learn more. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. On the whole, DP is a misleading guide to the level of uh, fermentability. There was one malt house from Western Australia um, that was always giving almost double the level of uh, limit dextrinase. And we're all pu- always puzzled about that. Well, why is that happening? This week on the show, the author of one of the latest publications from ASBC and Master Brewers joins us to talk about mashing. G'day, everybody. I'm uh, Evan Evans. I'm the Tassie Beer Doctor from uh, Hobart, Tasmania. Evan, you wrote that the most useful practical advances in malt quality come from relatively subtle shifts. What do you mean by that? Well, essentially, John, uh, mashing, brewing, uh, malting is usually not about quantum leaps. It's all about optimization. You don't want to go too far one way or too far the other way. Usually, the, the, there's a sort of a sweet spot uh, towards the center that we, uh, we look to uh, achieve in, uh, in brewing and malting. Okay, uh, we're here talking about your, your book titled Mashing. Uh, I have to say chapter seven was my favorite. In, in it, you wrote that, quote, maltsters and brewers would benefit from some modernization of descriptors of malt quality. 
then you went on to reinforce your message with a Mark Twain quote. I'd like to like you to walk us through a couple of specific improvements suggested in chapter seven. But before that, give us the big picture and explain what some malt quality parameters have in common with lampposts. <laughs> um, well, uh, this has been the story of my research life and in many discussions with uh, maltsters, good maltsters and good brewers. Effectively, um, many of the, uh, uh, the parameters for malt quality uh, have been with us uh, perhaps uh, dating back 200 years. In this, I'm thinking about the, uh, the Congress smash um, it's a uh, effectively a, a one-step program, a one-step uh, decoction mash that's trying to uh, emulate, uh, and that goes back. I'm reliably told to a, a German uh, brewers' convention in 1915, uh, sorry, in 1815, and uh, as such, uh, we've moved on a hell of a lot in the last 200 years, uh, particularly uh, in the uh, brewing equipment. For instance, jacketed mash tons, etc. Uh, but also, malt quality is uh, kept pace with that, or malt varieties have kept pace with that. The maltsters have improved their game. They've gone from floor maltings to pneumonic maltings, pneumatic maltings, pretty much. So uh, that means that uh, uh, some of the characteristics that we're looking at uh, in terms of a, 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 a bill of sale for for malt are perhaps not quite as um, uh, relevant as they were 200 years ago. Uh, in particular, I would suggest looking at uh, the uh, fermentability and DP. Uh, that can be actually broken down into the activities of uh, alpha amylase, beta amylase, and uh, limit dextrinase. And uh, there's some things that can go on with those enzymes um, that can quite substantially change the results that uh, brewers might uh, achieve or, or might see uh, with uh, when, when they're brewing with particular malts. Talk about real and pseudo-enzyme thermostability. Well, um, beta amylase is the classic example of that. Um, through a couple of my students, uh, Yufang Ma and Jason Eglinton, or PhD students, um, we've nailed down that there's a, a couple of types of thermostability in the beta amylase that's related to uh, enzyme, uh, sorry, uh, amino acid uh, substitutions or exchanges um, in the beta amylase protein. And uh, one of them, uh, what I call, or what we call the uh, uh, starch degrading or SDH high, um, the activity actually means something in terms of the mash at 65 or so degrees Celsius. Uh, the other is actually um, re related to the um, thermos, the uh, recovery of activity uh, after you've cooled down the enzyme from the mash uh, to see what enzyme activity is left. So the first is true thermostability, uh, the latter is pseudo-thermostability. Talk about why DP isn't a reliable metric for predicting wort fermentability. Well, classically, um, DP um, is thought to be the combined activity of all three of the uh, DP uh, enzymes, that being alpha-amylase, beta-amylase, and limit-dextrinase. And uh, 
we found um, that really um, DP just describes or is, a, is somewhat of a predictor of uh, beta amylase. And as we were talking in the beginning uh, as to that sweet spot for uh, brewing, it's actually the uh, activity of all three enzymes uh, that is important or the balance. Um, and the sort of the lowest common denominator determines essentially what you'll find or um, in your mash outcome in terms of fermentable sugars and obviously the amount of alcohol, the degree of, uh, um, of attenuation that you will achieve from that particular work produced during mashing. Last year, I believe, you published an ASBC paper demonstrating that limit dextrinase levels have increased substantially over the last 20 years. Talk about that. Yeah, that was a really interesting one. We did a survey back about 20 years ago, um, and uh, we looked at all, um, I think there was six, six or seven malt houses in Australia from four different malting groups, and uh, we found that was what, there was one malt house from Western Australia um, that was always giving almost double the level of uh, limit dextrinase. And we're all pu- always puzzled about that. Well, why is that happening? And a number of people, a number of very good people, for instance, Sandy McGregor from uh, Canada, always said, well, if you could increase your limit dextrinase, you could you know, really increase your fermentability, which is important for the mainstream international lagers that are produced uh, for most of the beer th- these days. So we were continuing to look at this and eventually um, so about five or six years or ten years ago, um, Australia set up a pilot moulding Australia uh, facility to produce, um, to produce about 100 kilograms of malt in a uni malter uh, that could be used for testing uh, new uh, varieties of Australian uh, malting barley. And when I started looking at their samples, I saw that the level of limit dextrinase was drub- was the highest I'd ever seen. Uh, instead of being around 320 units per kilogram, we were looking more um, even up to 800 uh, units per kilogram. And I go, what the hell's going on here? So I talked to the maltster who was doing the malting there. And for the uni malter, apparently, in um, steeping, you have to very regularly uh, rouse the grain. Otherwise, it'll set in the bottom of the uh, uni malter and it'll end up like the proverbial brick. So when they were using air to do that, so our uh, conclusion was that it was that actual air during um, or or the rousing, the dissolved oxygen content um, during steeping that was the key to increasing uh, the limit dextrinase. Now, the um, the, uh, malt house that was producing this high level of uh, limit dextrinase to begin with, um, it was actually a two-steep affair, thereby once you had the transfer from steep one down into steep two, uh, one would expect um, with that wet uh, slurry that there'd be some oxygenation. And uh, also, uh, in a visit to China um, a few years ago, I noticed that um, they were rousing um, their steeps uh, rather spectacularly in, in that the um, drops of uh, or, or, or things were leaping out of the steep at about half a metre or half a yard to a yard, you know, really jumping up. You get 
blobs of uh, of malt and water that were that were oxygen. Yeah, I, I've seen that in a lot of big commercial malt houses. It's I mean, it's impressive. It's like a geyser coming out of the yeah. out of the steam. Yeah, right? exactly. I I hadn't seen it before. Not certainly not in Australian um, um, steeps and so forth. So uh, we that suggested oxygenation. I I suspect it was to avoid. Um, the uh, PY the premature yeast flocculation, and uh, I and, and then I did that uh, survey that was published in ASBC, and all of a sudden all the malt houses had you know, an average of well, an average it was double uh, what we would see uh, some years ago or was the common a few years ago. So instead of an average, when you say all, you mean you mean across the globe, not just uh, no, uh, just near a, you. no, just sorry, just Australia and uh, also oh, okay, China, just and also China. So it was kind of yeah. it was kind of global, certainly by hemispherical anyway. So um, the conclusion is, and uh, I mean, there needs to be perhaps a few more experiments to done to uh, you know confirm or completely confirm it. Um, that's what's going on at the moment, and generally we don't me- measure uh, limit dextrinose. So if you're not measuring limit dextrinose, um, you're and it's usually not associated or not well correlated with uh, DP, then you've got a problem. So we also had um, uh, put a paper into EBC in Venice in 2007, um, where we used a number of case studies uh, for uh, DP versus looking at DP enzymes, and from that. Uh, and also in the uh, ASPC study, we saw that on the whole, uh, DP is a misleading uh, guide to the level of uh, fermentability uh, that you might call the production of fermentable sugars. What's wrong with the conventional analysis of beta-glucan, arabinoxylin, and viscosity? Yeah, really good question. Well, um, Let's start with beta-glucan, and that's really a success story. The brewing industry, that being the brewers and particularly the maltsters and the uh, uh, barley breeders, have done a brilliant job of taking the level of beta-glucan in the malt and what ends up in the wort from a very high level that could uh, cause problems uh, to virtually none at all. That means that... um, we, we really don't have to worry about limit a bit of glucan quite so much anymore with the modern maltings and the modern varieties, the levels of um, modification that we get. Um, that means that other uh, less uh, or traditionally less important uh, factors such as arabinazylan um, have become uh, more of an or be, become have, have uh, lifted their head to become a problem and uh, a, a, an opportunity to perhaps improve um, the uh, uh, filterability of the, uh, the beer and also the, the mass separation. And uh, Arabinus Island was something Paul Schwartz from North Dakota, Fargo, um, was a, an early um, identifier of uh, that being of something we should consider. I like that Paul Schwartz guy. He's, he's a good guy. Yeah, he's a smart guy. What's the SWIFT test and what do you like about it? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I suppose I'm a big fan of a uh, South African brewer uh, called uh, Barry Excel. Um, and he was very uh, big on having functional tests for malt quality. Uh, wrote a couple of really nice papers in the uh, 
technical quarterly, I think one in 1990 and one in 1998. Um, also, when you tended to enter a room, is one of the smartest guys that you, you you could find. So I'm very much into the you know the functionality of well, why are we measuring it, and and what information is it going to give us? Uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Doug Stewart, who's now the uh, maltster at uh, Cooper's Malting in Adelaide, he came up with uh, what we ended up calling the Swift test, which was effectively a a, a small scale wort filtration test. And going back to the uh, viscosity side of things, um, effectively this was a test of uh, what might happen um, during uh, beer filtration uh, in, a, in a brewery and, and give you an idea of whether you might get a, a good, efficient run or a less efficient run. And uh, effectively what it was was using a, a couple of syringes, one of the syringes um, was used to create a vacuum rather than to push the uh, wort through a, a nylon filter, 0.45 micrometer myelin filter. It pulled it through, uh, and that seemed to be the real trick because then you get a, quite a consistent force pulling the, uh, the wort through, and you get some numbers that actually make some sense. So this, in terms of functional tests and in the pure and the purity of uh, Barry's uh, vision, um, that was. Uh, I think that's a, a really good example. Um, and also it measures um, not only beta-glucan, arabinus island, um, potentially it could look at um, protein and other components in the wort um, to uh, understand how they may impact uh, filterability um, at, at the, uh, um, at the uh, beer filtration stage. Coming up, there's big questions as to why you might want to go, you know, back to the future to use these sorts of uh, techniques. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, Try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. This episode is brought to you by BSG, home of Pathfinder Yeast and Nutrient for hard seltzer and FMB production. With an all-in-one yeast and nutrient package, Pathfinder TY Pure delivers a clean, neutral-based seltzer that's ready for flavoring. Already have a yeast strain to pitch? Pathfinder N-Pure Nutrient helps it adapt to the unique conditions of a sugar fermentation 
and avoid off flavors. Let Pathfinder help you find your way. Ask us how at go.bsgcraft.com slash contact us. Are you looking to improve yield, quality, and sustainability in your cellar? Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience, offering centrifuges, dealkalization systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects. Designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. Let the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. Thank you to Brewing with Enzymes by Novazymes. For commercial brewers, enzymes can ease filtration, eliminate diacetyl rest, meet attenuation targets, and optimize your raw materials to save on labor. If you're curious to learn more, head over to brewingwithenzymes.com and get 50% off with your first order using discount code MBAA. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at August Shells Brewery, May 26th. Don't miss the Master Brewers webinar, How Will Climate Change Affect the Brewing Industry, May 31st. District St. Louis meets at Urban Chestnut Midtown, June 2nd. Lab on the Cheap, another Master Brewers webinar, June 8th. District Southern California meets June 10th and 11th in Anaheim. District Carolinas meets June 18th at Brewery 85 in Greenville, South Carolina. District Philly's golf outing is June 24th. The 2022 Brewing Summit, that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. of the Congress MASH is a topic that's come up on the show a few times before. In fact, we've got an entire episode on that subject. Uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, just how old it is. What's your opinion in regards to how or if we should all just move beyond the Congress MASH? Um, actually, I'd like to step back one for one uh, uh, one step. And I suppose one of the um, motivations for writing the book or a series of experiments that I did was to look at what sh- what each of the parameters that we might use during a mash might uh, do, and how manipulating them may impact the amount of extract and the amount of uh, attenuation and, and other factors you might get. Uh, one of those, obviously, was temperature. Uh, we were able to show that the optimum temperature for getting attenuation, and you may not want total attenuation, what may want a, a full a more full bodied beer. Um, the optimum temperature was around 65 degrees. I was sort of an, interested in that from the perspective of, well, at that time, as just looking tw- almost 20 years ago, um, beta amylase and limidextrinase were considered to have a, a thermostability of less than 60 degrees, more like 50 to 55 degrees. Uh, but clearly, uh, by the uh, range of uh, fermentable sugars, such as maltose in particular, um, we were getting good activity um, of beta amylase, obviously from the effect, at 65 degrees. Um, Also, we went to look at uh, useful things like uh, mash or or grist to water ratio. Uh, Also looked at, uh, obviously, the time of the mash or the duration of the mash. Uh, We looked at uh, the, the coarseness of the grist grind. 
Um, we looked at, um, what else did we look at? A, a couple of other parameters. They're the main ones anyway. So really when you consider a, a Congress smash, the risk-to-water ratio is one to four, at least to start with, where most of the uh, enzyme activity or starch-degrading activity occurs. In a uh, commercial mash, you're looking at one to three or less, somewhere probably somewhere between uh, one to three and uh, one to 2.5. So that's quite different. Um, the other uh, characteristics um, you look at are the fineness of the grist. Uh, for the uh, Congress mash, you use a 0.2 millimetre disc grind. Um, that's very fine. But if you use uh, a 0.7, uh, many of my, although the um, clarification uh, ratios between the different uh, sieves um, is a little, quite a bit different, um, many of the uh, good brewers that I know will tell you you know, that's a, a reasonable approximation uh, of what actually occurs on a commercial basis. So that was that was uh, what we were trying to do. And it turns out that there's some uh, quite subtle uh, changes uh, that you achieve when you uh, go towards what you'd call uh, a, a modified uh, IOB mash. Um, particularly in the temperature, we don't start at uh, 45 degrees. We start, we whack in straight at 65 degrees, uh, the optimal temperature for starch uh, hydrolysis. And Martina Gastel from uh, Vine Steffen has done some uh, really interesting work where the Germans who effectively came up with the Congress mash have actually shifted from the Congress mash to an IOB uh, style mash that is mashing in at 65 degrees. Um, because the ranking of the different varieties that they're looking at uh, changes when you go between the mashes. So there's a whole series of subtle uh, changes that occur in, in that particular case. And uh, unfortunately, the only thing the, uh, the Germans uh, did was that instead of using a one to three risk to water ratio um they used a uh, a one to uh, seven or one point one to seven point five risk to water ratio and the reason for that is they wanted to knock down the um fermentability of uh, the wort that was produced so um because enzymes uh the the thickness of the mash has quite an impact on the thermostability and the activity of the uh, of various enzymes, particularly the starch enzymes and particularly beta amylase and limit dextrinase, um, I don't think that that's a, a really good idea. They, they almost got it right, but not quite. Chapter 11 is all about the decisions brewers make in regards to mash temperatures and hold times. Hmm. Talk about the importance of mash and temperature. Well, it depends on what the brewer's trying to do. If Are they trying to uh, result or are they trying to get uh, the most efficient uh, production of uh, work uh, that is most attainable so they could make the most beer? Because usually the determinant of the amount of beer you make is the amount of alcohol. Um, that work produces. However, that's not the only thing uh, that brewers would like to uh, like to like to uh, attain. Uh, obviously, some brewers uh, want to uh, build the body of their beer. Uh, that can be done by unfermentable uh, or non-fermentable carbohydrates. So the DP enzymes don't uh, make their effect. 
So uh, perhaps a lower or even somewhat of a higher temperature uh, might be useful. For the, so in other words, you're making, um, you know, you, you're giving a better mouthfeel for that beer. Uh, on the other hand, you might want to be making a, an American light beer. So you basically want to get rid of the maximum level of carbohydrate uh, that you can that's in the beer uh, and turn that into alcohol. Um, that, uh, that means, you know, that 65 degree, a, a thick mash um, and a, a relatively long um, a, a mash duration um, is useful. The other thing you might want to do is to make a low alcohol beer, which is quite topical at the moment, given the uh, um, innovations by Heineken and uh, other people with uh, zero alcohol beers. So, in that case, you want to produce as uh, the, the the you want to reduce the number of uh, fermentable sugars available. Therefore, you might um, mash in instead of at sixty five degrees, you might want to mash in at uh, seventy or seventy two degrees. Um, but here is one of those little red lot or red flags you've got to be very careful about because when you do that, um, we're able to show that you massively increase the amount of uh, lipid uh, that ends up in the beer and particularly the uh, more of the linoleic acid than the palmitic acid, the two main uh, fatty acids of the work. And being a linoleic acid or sort of linoleic acid being a uh, a double desaturated bond at, uh, fatty acid uh, is also potentially able to be um, uh, reduced and oxygenated um, in the mash and, and therefore pro cause problems for um, thermostability, uh, sorry, for uh, uh, flavour stability and uh, also for um, uh, lipid, uh, so, so for uh, foam stability as well. So uh, some of that lipid or a good portion of that lipid is lost during the uh, boil, uh, but we really haven't done any further work to sort of work out how much of that occurs and uh, the wheres and wherefores of that. Is there anything else you'd like to say about um, classic and or modern approaches to mash temperature programs? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, it's the old decoction uh, versus uh, program mash um, story. Uh, the de decoction's the very old German style. Um, it's uh, some see it with some sort of rose-tinted glasses as being quite a nice thing to do. Um, and the reason for it was, uh, I suppose, technologically, as te technological as much as anything, that being is they didn't have steam jacketed um, uh, tons back in those days. Uh, they were direct fired or whatever. So um, basically they'd take off a proportion, say 15 to 20% of the mash, heat it up or boil it, and then add it back in, and that resulted in an increase in the, uh, in the temperature. So um, what... Um, uh, uh, what they look to do um, is, uh, with uh, improvements in the technology, um, you didn't have to do that. And particularly with uh, in, uh, the improved malt quality and uh, from going from uh, floor maltings to uh, pneumatic uh, produced malts, uh, 
um, the the, the uh, consistency across the uh, malt and also um, the degree of modification uh, was very very good. So that wasn't uh, that wasn't a particular problem. So um, then the need to undertake these uh, uh, decoction mashes was uh, not as uh, direct and required as what it was back in, in 1800 uh, compared to, say, now in uh, 2020 or the 2000s. So um, although there's some sort of, uh, you know, starry-eyed look back on, on these decoction mashes, really, particularly in this era, this era of being concerned about climate change and energy usage, energy usage always, whether you believe in climate change or not, um, is important. It's expensive. Energy is expensive. So uh, decoction mashing is expensive in terms of the amount of energy. It is also expensive the amount of time. You can get less um, brew runs each day, etc. So, and it would appear there was a very nice uh, paper uh, produced by one of the Weimans or Weimans uh, from Germany, which tend to suggest that there's not too many differences uh, between work produced by a decoction mash versus uh, an isothermal mash, say at uh, 65 degrees. So, there's big questions as to why you might want to go, you know, back to the future to use these sorts of uh, techniques. Talk about how mash duration affects fermentability. Well, um, that was kind of an interesting one. I thought that uh, the mash duration would sort of go along relatively, maybe exponentially in terms of uh, time versus fermentability. But it turns out that if you were to look at around 15 minutes, um, around 90% of your fermentable sugar uh, production has uh, hence occurred. Um, and for the next um, 40 odd minutes, say to 60 minutes or 45 minutes, um, there's um, you know about a 10% increase in the uh, fermentability. So that suggests that um, those enzymes um, uh, the, and in, within the mash that that starch uh, degradation hydrolysis occurs pretty quickly. Uh, even though uh, the uh, limit dextrinase and beta amylase uh, will last uh, at least half of their activity will last up until you know the fifty or sixty minute mark. So if you inc- if you have a long duration um, of uh, of mash, then you'll get obviously more fermentability. That's good if you're producing a light beer, um, but it becomes kind of difficult um, to produce uh, a more a greater body mash by having a short mash because obviously when you may be dealing with 5, 10, 20 tonnes of malt, um, the, even with the good equipment that we have these days, it, it takes a while um, to, to heat it up or to uh, transfer it across, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of um, came through to uh, a, a query that I had from a, malt ha- from a brewer in uh, Western Australia uh, actually using that malt, which had high levels of uh, limit dextrinase, and they found, and their complaint was not the uh, not that the uh, malt was less fermentable; it was too fermentable because basically they stuck their malt into the and mixed with the uh, liquor and into the mash tun, and then they had to pull it out 
um, for the next step or increase uh, the temperature up to a temperature that, de- that would de- denature all the enzymes. So, um, you know, it's, it was kind of an interesting uh, interesting comment and also it kind of told us that what we were seeing uh, with this particular malt house with high levels of limit dextrinase, that it did have um, com- uh, it did have relevance uh, for the brewer. And probably a good example of you're looking for that sweet spot. The brewers are looking for a sweet spot. They're just looking to tweak uh, components or characters from one thing to another to to get the result that they want to produce their beer. Evan, there's a lot of different mashing equipment and techniques out there, some of which you cover in Chapter 13. What approach would you take if you were designing your own dream brewery? Oh, I'd be um, jacketed um, mash ton. Um, I'd, uh, depending on what sort of uh, brew run and what products I was using, um, that's going to determine the choice between a mash filter um, and a, a lauder ton. Lauder tons tend to be a little bit more flexible. Uh, mash filters tend to be a little bit more economic um, and efficient. So it depends on what you're looking to do and also what you're most comfortable with. Um, I'd be, uh, you know, the, I think the kettles, I'd be looking to, uh, for boiling, I'd be looking to have uh, options for um, modifying uh, the, uh, the boil. Um, there's some good evidence, again, from Barry Excel's group um, that modifying the, uh, modifying the, uh, the, the boil is important to the likely foam uh, outcome you're going to get. Uh, and effectively, you want to not boil too, or you want to boil as much as you need, but no more than that. Um, and when I say as much as you need, obviously, to get the isomerization of hops and also to uh, remove uh, get rid of DMS the DMS, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But if you go too far, you, uh, you uh, denature a protein called LTP1 too much and that results in a limitation in its uh, lipid binding uh, uh, characteristics and that will result in uh, poorer foam stability. So there's quite a bit in it. Talk about what you think the future of mashing looks like. Yeah, well, I think there's a really nice bit of kit that um, a, a Danish and a German group called Spectershell uh, came out with and effectively it takes a stream of the mash uh, off in real time during mashing and assesses it for the amount of extract, uh, the amount of uh, f- fermentable sugars, uh, the amount of uh, soluble nitrogen and that sort of thing at this stage. They put it through a, an NIR scanner. Obviously, they've uh, done some sort of uh, um, mash separation to to get the wort or uh, away from uh, the, unso- the ins- insoluble com- uh, or the non-soluble components, and uh, I reckon that's the way to go. I mean, for a couple of reasons, because it means that you can tailor your mash so that that's going to uh, that that's going to result in better energy efficiency, time efficiency, and, and that sort of thing. And the other thing you got to consider is, although the uh, the barley growers and the maltsters do a great job in a very changeable environment. Uh, of producing high quality 
uh, and uh, consistent malt, there are some inconsistencies that are that are there. That's inherent in that particular material. It's a it's produced in a biological uh, agronomic system. So that way you can uh, look at those um, assessment, or you can look in real time, or the brewer can consider in real time what's going on and make slight adjustments uh, in his mash, uh, depending on uh, uh, how the uh, the the very small quality effects are occurring. So that way, ending up with very tight specs uh, for the wort and for the beer. So I think that's a, a real game changer in the future. And in fact, the future is probably just about here. What will happen is that um, the future will become uh, a little more efficient and a little less costly, I suspect, as we uh, as we move forward. <laughs> That was Evan Evans here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for a direct link to Evan's book, Mashing, available in the Master Brewers Bookstore, where members always get a discount. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers Podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Mall, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.